This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. There have been great surprises all throughout human history, and today I'd like to start the message, this resurrection message, by looking at a small surprise. It occurred just a few years ago when some papyri fragments were examined. In fact, for 93 years, these three small papyri fragments that were really of the 26th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, they had been placed in a display case next to Oscar Wilde's glasses in Magdalen College in Oxford, England. They had been sent there in 1901 by Reverend Charles Hewlett, who had been a graduate of Magdalen, and who at the time of the turn of the century was doing a small pastoral stint in Luxor, Egypt. He acquired these three small papyri fragments when the British Empire ruled the world and when British archaeologists were swarming all over Egypt's historical sites finding these incredible finds. And so he took those fragments and sent them as a gift to Magdalen College. And there they stayed in this small display case in the library for 93 years. I want you to know that all that changed in 1994. Because in 1994, Karsten Theody, who was the director for the Institute of Epistemological Research in Paderborn, Germany, was asked to examine and date these three small fragments. He was an expert in uh, dating ancient papyri. And so he took them and he looked at them And he, to his amazement, discovered, and soon the world discovered, that these fragments were the oldest fragments of the New Testament that we ever had. He dated them at 60 A.D. And that may not mean a lot to you here this morning at the start, but for those who have a more scientific bent, I want you to know that these three small fragments provided the first hard proof that the Gospels, at least from a scientific standpoint, were in fact what they have always claimed to be. And that is a firsthand, accurate, eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather than what you hear so often propounded in our culture today, and even at our universities, unfortunately, that the Gospels are in fact a far-removed, highly questionable, over-sensationalized, fiction-injected recollection of just simply Jesus' myths. But these three small fragments shocked the scientific world and changed all that. It demonstrated that the Gospels were not some concoction of wild-eyed Christian fanatics in the 2nd and 3rd century, but were in fact first-hand accounts of eyewitnesses that had been passed around even before the close of the New Testament. Now I say that because some of you here this morning probably have heard recently about the uh, famous, or I call it infamous, Jesus Seminar that travels the United States with a team of scholars who pride themselves in destroying the credibility of the New Testament, and in particular, the Gospels, saying that less than 20% of what you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have any validity at all. They deny all the miracles of Jesus Christ. They claimed He never said that He was the Son of God, that that was added hundreds of years later. 
that his death meant absolutely nothing and his resurrection was pure fiction. But that brings us back this morning, at least in our start here this morning, to these three small fragments. If the dating is indeed correct, they become one of the most important finds since the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, Time Magazine said in 1995 it called these fragments a step closer to the real Jesus. Because in their own special way, they declared that the Gospel of Matthew, at least, was being actually circulated before the close, before the New Testament was even finished being written. People were handling those. People who were eyewitnesses who could actually verify and say whether these things that this writing was claiming were true. These things were being passed around even before the close of the New Testament. Now, some of you might say, gosh, I'd like to know more about that. And I want you to know that you can. A book has been written called The Eyewitness or Eyewitnesses to Jesus. And it's published by Doubleday. You can get it at a local bookstore. Or you can order it even in our bookstore. But this book is a fascinating book for those with a scientific bent because it challenges the notion that is so popular today, and I'm glad Bill mentioned it in his testimony, that there's this huge gap between the Christ of history and this so-called Christ of faith. As if they're not one and the same. And as if the second would have any meaning without the first. I want you to start with me this morning by just asking the question, who is the Christ of faith if He is not the Christ of history? Who is He? And I want you to know if I can be uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically blunt here at the beginning, that if the Christ of faith is not the Christ of history, then what He becomes is a limp, sanitized, gutted of real power, do-gooder with a few empty sayings that give dead churches some meager reason to keep on meeting. That's all He is. The Christ of faith if he is not the Christ of history, is the Christ of worthless fantasy. But then why are we here? We're here because we know otherwise, don't we? We're celebrating the fact that even the apostles understood the difference between the two. They knew that if the events of Jesus' life were just simply concocted tales rather than real historical events, that they were just simply another worthless cult with a fictionalized faith and no more hope than those of Heaven's Gate who felt like they were going to be carried away in a spaceship between, behind the Hale-Bopp Comet. That's all it was! If it were not that the Christ of faith and the Christ of history were one and the same. For the sake of argument, though, I want you to imagine with me this morning something that would shock you. It would become, quote, the story of human history. I want you to imagine it six months from now Fall has started. You've just finished watching the Razorbacks the night before and life is good and you get up and take your daily ritual out into your driveway to pick up your morning newspaper. And you've turned and you're walking back and you open up the newspaper and the breath is just simply ripped from your chest. You can't believe it. And in stunned silence, you read this headline. The body of Jesus Christ found. Now let me tell you, that would be history's greatest surprise, wouldn't it? And as you looked at that, as you read that, as you 
absorb the shock of that. What would that mean? What would that mean to you? What would that mean to your family and friends? What would it mean to the church of Jesus Christ? You know, that's a good question to ask on this Easter morning. And you know what I want you to know? I want you to know that those clear-thinking first-century zealots understood exactly what it meant. In fact, they tell you what it would mean if this actually ever takes place. Now, I want you to turn to start this morning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you turn there, I'm going to let the Apostle Paul answer the question, what if? What if the body of Jesus Christ were actually found? Because these were not wild-eyed Christian zealots who were not able in their fanaticism to face the reality of this ugly truth if it ever came into being. And here's what Paul would say. And as I read, I want you to notice the if statements as he contemplates this possibility. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if, now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? They were saying that in the first century. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we've witnessed against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep died in Christ. They've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now you know, there are some amazing if statements, and if those were true, if there was no real bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then, sent, then what Paul presents here is six counter-realities that would come rushing in. And I'm going to briefly enumerate them for you in your text there as you look. First of all, notice in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then all Christian preaching would be in vain. The word vain is the Greek word kinos, which means without content, without basis, without effect, empty. All Christian preaching would be reduced to nothingness. And by the way, those pulpits today who don't believe in the reality of the resurrection... This morning, there is an empty, hollow feeling in the air. All Christian preaching would be reduced to nothingness. Pulpits like this one would quickly become just collector's items for antique dealers, kind of like symbols of communism have become that. When I was in Poland, I remember buying all kinds of medals and hats of the Russian army when it was the Soviet Union but the pulpit would just be a collector's item, a vestige of a bygone day. Sunday would suddenly become just another ordinary day rather than what it really is, an echo of real history that marked a moment in time that was so cataclysmic, so fantastic, so earth-shaking that it is now the day of worldwide worship around the world. How did it get that day? How did the day get that way? Did it get that way because you find in the New Testament that we're to worship on Sunday? No. 
Do you find a first or second century Christian creed that says we're to worship on Sunday? No. There's no statements like that. The reality is, is that on a special day, Sunday, something happened on planet Earth that caused the whole concept of worship to be turned upside down so that the first day became the day of which all worship would then be focused. But let me tell you, if there was no resurrection, you know what Sunday would become? Monday. That's what it would become. It'd just be like Monday. It would be the first day of the week. We'd all go to work. It'd be just like any other day. Secondly, notice in verse 14, our faith would vaporize instantaneously. We would no longer pray in Jesus' name because Jesus' name would mean nothing. It doesn't carry us to the throne room of God. It's an empty name. In fact, it would be forever known as just simply a cruel joke. Notice in verse 15, the term apostle would become synonymous with the word liar, not the word leader. The Bible would be immediately downsized, scaled back to just the Old Testament only, with the New Testament being good for nothing else other than recycled paper. That's all it would be for. Notice in verse 17, we would still be in our sins, the Scripture says. Jesus would no longer be our Savior. In fact, this incredible heaviness of guilt and sin would rush back upon us. There would be this haunting kind of reality of, now what? How do I stand before a God? Faith would vaporize and fear would energize. And that grim, now what question would be the predominant question of the 21st century. That would be the new bridge. Notice fifthly in verse 18, our loved ones who had died believing in this lie. Paul says, well, they've perished. All the hope, those graveside ceremonies would mean nothing at this moment. We would be forced by the harsh breath of this new reality to bow the knee to secularists such as Bertrand Russell when he said this, the life of man is but a long march through the night. One by one as we march, our comrades vanish from our sight. Seized by the only real reality, the silent orders of omnipotent death. That's what it would be like if there was no resurrection. In fact, if there was no resurrection, Paul concludes in verse 19, we Christians of all people on this earth would be most to be pitied. Now I start this morning mentioning those six things for two reasons. First of all, I want to remind you that those who lived and died for Jesus Christ and all of the first century leaders died horrendous deaths. Deaths that you can't even imagine in their terror. But even so, even in contemplating that, I want you to know these were not mindless, hysterical fanatics who could not even consider the possibility that Jesus Christ hadn't raised from the dead. We just, ra we just read an apostle's account of his deep considerations about what that would mean. And yet, Paul brushes it off as if, oh, they're just simply a few things that we can consider, but let's move on. In fact, that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 20. He just simply moves on. After making all these if statements, he comes to verse 20 and he goes, and, and I want you to feel this because I think this is almost how he wrote it. It's almost nonchalant after going if, if, if. But then he comes to the end and he goes, yeah, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. 
and he moves on. It's as if when you're finished up lunch, you get up and you notice a few crumbs on your coat and you just kind of brush them away and move on. Those crumbs are those if statements and Paul just simply gets up and he looks at them for just a moment, contemplates them. Yeah, that would happen if that were true, but he just brushes them away. And he says, but Christ has been raised from this. Let's move on. Because I've seen him. And ultimately, I'll give my life for him. But there's also a second reason I mentioned those six things. And it really brings us to this morning. Because, you know, 2,000 years ago on this morning, all of those six things, that little band of apostles that had believed in him, they were feeling these things. They were feeling that they were still in their sins. They were feeling that life now was empty. Their faith had vaporized. They thought of themselves not as world changers, but now as being beaten by the world. And of all men, most to be pitied. They were despondent, broken, and hopeless. Who thought they had lived for the truth, but because the body in their minds was still in that tomb, they had lived for a lie. And they were no better off now. In fact, they were worse off now than when they began three years ago. That's where they were on this morning 2,000 years ago. Shut up behind locked doors away from the world so that no one would see their futility. The world that they thought they were going to change had now run over them and passed them by. But later that evening, all that changed. And I want you to take your Bibles now and turn over to John chapter 20 and experience that change with me on this great Easter day. Because when you get to John chapter 20, the day has passed. They've heard a few statements that something had happened, but remember, they're behind locked doors at this point. Fearful of life on the outside. And we come to verse 19 of this great chapter of the Gospel of John. And this is what it says. When therefore it was evening on that day, that resurrection day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And you know, this week when I read that, you know the first thought I had was not for them, but I thought of all the people, including myself, that I've met whose life is a picture of this very moment. In a sense, this is an allegory of us shut up behind locked doors unto ourselves. If you think about it, this is how Jesus Christ has to enter any human heart. Not just these men who are sitting here scared to death 2,000 years ago, because we all begin our spiritual journey, don't we? Some of you maybe even today are going to start your spiritual journey. But we all begin our spiritual journey behind closed doors and locked hearts. Some of the locks on your doors may be unbelief. Some of it may be despair. Some of it may be just self-protection. You don't want anybody getting close to you. Some of you have the locked doors of pride or other things or rebellion or just simply sin. The locked doors of our own hearts, trusting only in ourselves, believing we're all that there is and we've got to make it on our own Shut up tight with an image on the outside, fearful 
of what others might do around us. That's the way all men and women are before faith. Locked unto ourselves. And like with these disciples, only a resurrected Christ, listen, only a resurrected Christ has the power to move through that closed off life and get in. Is that not right? Is that how He moved into your life? That's certainly how He moved into my life. He moved right past my barriers, my questioning, my unbelief, my pride. And when He arrived, He just appeared. He was just there. I may, like Bill said, you think you're 75% there, but He's just there and He won't go away. Surprised, C.S. Lewis said, by joy. The resurrected Christ appears. And you can't ignore Him. The disciples couldn't ignore Him. They were still fearful, but there He was. In their midst. He's here. He's real. He's alive. And they couldn't explain it. But you know what? In 1968, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain it sitting at that bar on Dixon Street. And He just showed up. And you have to deal with Him there. And He won't go away. But in that moment, Jesus Christ met these men. And all their fears and their doubts were dispelled by the reality of His presence. And in the power of His resurrected life, He offered to them a number of wonderful things. And you know, it's what the resurrection really means for our day. Because He offers to you today those same things. I want to mention five that I find in this text that are here today so that you can know for you, not for anybody else, for you, what the resurrection really stands for. First, here's what it stands for, a new sense of security. I want you to notice Jesus' first words to His disciples when He walked into that room. Actually, vaporized, moved into that room right through the walls. His first words to them were words that were revolutionary. Listen, here's what He said. Peace be unto you. Does that not feel good? Peace be unto you. Now even today in the Middle East, that's an ordinary greeting like hello. But in this moment, under these circumstances, that phrase took on an extraordinary meaning. In fact, meanings. All of a sudden, it meant that all that Jesus had said about life, about the meaning of life, about death, about eternal life, when He said, peace, you could almost hear the trailer. All this is real. Everything He said, it's the real thing. It also meant that most of what bothers us in this life, in light of the resurrection, is in fact really insignificant. So many of the things that bother us, you know why they bother us? Is because we lose the resurrection focus. We begin to believe that this life is all that there is, and so things and possessions and stature and status, all those things mean so much. But you know, when Jesus Christ walks into the room and He says, peace be unto you, the trailer on that is, it's not really that important. It's not really that significant. Because in light of the resurrection, everything takes on new values. Certain things get cheaper. Certain things get more expensive. 
all in the light of eternal life. Eternal life and resurrection meant that we're not alone in this life. Living God appears and suddenly you realize you're not alone, that all that you thought you had to carry, you had to deal with, suddenly you find that there's someone for you that's bigger than you. That's what these men found in this moment. And his desire is to help us navigate through a fallen sinful world of dead ends and deaths that man has suffered under for centuries. But suddenly he's there and he's saying, you don't have to do it on your own. I want you to shut your eyes for a moment. Everybody, shut your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to think back on your week, where you've been, responsibilities you have. And for some of us right now, they feel like crushing responsibilities. We've been trying to work all those out. Or maybe events that we had no control over that's brought tragedy into our life or sense of hopelessness. But I want you to imagine that you could go home and when you walked in, Jesus was there. It's the resurrected Christ. And He looks right into your eyes. You know what He would say? Peace. Peace be unto you. A new sense of security. That's what the resurrection stands for. And that's what Easter is all about. This life is not all that there is. We have someone who's in charge of this and the next, and he's for us. But there's a second glorious reality here. I want you to notice it's a new body. It's found in verse 20 because notice it says, and when he had said this to them, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now they were rejoicing over his resurrection, but it meant far more than that. And they knew it and they could sense it. And later they would articulate it. I don't know if you saw the cover of Time Magazine this last week entitled, the cover story was, Does Heaven Exist? And within the Time Magazine where there's the article that ensues, there's a number of surveys. And one of those surveys asks Americans, does a person's soul live in heaven or will they have a soul and body? 66% of Americans said a soul only. 26% said a soul and body. And we have the answer here. Can I have the envelope, please? <laughs> See, in verse 20, Jesus Christ, when He appeared to His disciples, appeared the way it really is going to be, not as a ghost, not as some spirit that we can make up later on and say, you know, that's really what happened. It wasn't a real body. No, He appeared in a resurrected body. And what He did is He modeled for us and for those disciples, the first new body, one that one day you will possess in eternity as well. You know, I found that most people don't like their physical bodies. Over 47 years, there's always something somebody says, yeah, but I don't like this, and I don't like that. We, we get sometimes too body conscious, but Paul even goes on later and says, but we're going to have a new body. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed. This natural body that's perishable, it shall be raised up in glory and in power. And you know, that should be good news for all of us. Not just in the superficial sense of having something that looks better. But you know, when you think about it in a very real sense, 
We grieve over the handicaps sometimes we suffer, the limitations we have, the disfigurements of certain people, the deformities, family, friends, people that we know, loved ones. We grieve over that. We despair sometimes over the diseases that inflict those we care about and rob them of life and of opportunity. We hate the limitations and the missed opportunities that so often this body suffers under. We wish we could do more, go more, experience more, but our body holds us back. We deplore the fact that there will come a time for all of us when this body wears down and wears out and dies. But you know, in the light of this moment, there was glory because they saw a new body modeled for them. And they realized that one day this body would be done away, but a new body would come in their resurrection and in our resurrection. Jesus Christ, listen, He rendered the new body certain, absolutely certain, 2,000 years ago. There's a third glory here of the resurrection. It's what I call a new destination. Days before this event occurred, before Jesus Christ was crucified, He turned to His disciples and told them that He was going away. And they all got worried and anxious. And He said, let your heart not be troubled. If you believe in God, believe in Me. And then He said this, I go to prepare a place for you. A place for you. So in answer to Time's cover story, does heaven exist? The answer is, Yes, yes, because the resurrected Christ proved that. C.S. Lewis once said, Heaven is the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a, it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience, and yet we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. Heaven is a secret. But I want you to know on this glorious Easter morning, Jesus Christ said, but heaven is also certain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved its existence. It marked Jesus' promise of a place for us as not the rhetoric of a false apostle or prophet, but rather the resurrection was signed into law when Jesus Christ appeared before these men. It became reality when He stood before them. It rendered it certain. And it also, by the way, rendered Jesus as the only authorized leader into it. There's a fourth glory of the resurrection. It's that we will have a new ultimate purpose. I want you to look at verse 21 of John chapter 20. Because Jesus then turns to them and He says a second time, Peace be unto you. And then He says... As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You know what Jesus Christ is calling them back to? Jesus Christ is calling them back to how man was originally created in the beginning. And let me tell you, you and I were originally created for one purpose. One ultimate purpose. And that was to serve God and His kingdom. Now, I know that's been buried under all kinds of other callings, in particular our own sin and selfishness. 
But I want you to know in the midst here of the glory of his resurrection, Jesus Christ calls these guys back to a wheel alignment for a rightly lived life. That's what he's pulling them back to. And he's saying there's a lot going on. But here's what I want you to know as I stand before you in my glorious presence. As the Father has sent me to serve, that's what I'm calling you to do. To move back into that original purpose of life. And you know, I want you to know, serving God as anyone will find who embraces Jesus Christ in faith is not just a call to duty. It's never been that call to me. It's a call to life, to a meaningful life, and to satisfaction. I say that because so often in our day, so many of us run after other things that in time, even before this life is over, ends up in burnout and emptiness and sands through the finger. Man was created to serve God. This morning, since you met Bill Smith, I want to tell another story on him. Because Bill is one of those guys, like many who are in our body, who have come to a place in their life where they've decided to weave into the fabric of their existence this purpose called serving God. And I remember one of the fun stories Bill told was of a time when he was on an airplane, when he sat down on an airplane and a young man sat next to him and they began to have an interchange. And Bill asked him what he did. He said he was a consultant with the government. He was on his way to Pine Bluff there to interact. And he began to talk about his life and his family. And finally he turned to Bill and he said, well, what do you do? And Bill just kind of spontaneously shot back, well, I work for a king. He said, really? What kind of king? Where is he? Well, he's a secret king. He lived over in the Middle East at one time. And the guy said, amazing. And they began to talk. And you can imagine what then ensued. <laughs> but here's what I want you to also know without telling you the rest of the story. It is amazing. It is amazing. Especially when I think of how God has changed Bill's life to serve him. That's what's amazing. And so it is with so many of our lives. You know, there are many of you here. You're 20 years old and you're going to make it happen out there in the world. You're going to get that car and get that job, get that home, get that wife and have those kids and life will be good. Then there are those of us who are in our 40s and 50s and we got every one of those things. But if we don't have Christ, it doesn't feel so good, does it? Because that kind of conventional way of living that's promised as the American dream, it has a built-in timer that runs out before the end of life. And everyone here will reach that point where they go, now what? You know, life wasn't meant to run down before you finished. If I understand it correctly as I read the Scriptures and as I have experienced in life, as you move through life, if you're rightly aligned on the right tracks and understand your purpose, life should get even more exciting with more opportunities and more adventures to it. If you're here today and you say, well, that's not me, then maybe we need to come back to Easter and the resurrection and a God who stands before you and says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. You know, the world says over a lifetime, you're working for retirement. The resurrection says over a lifetime, you are serving God in a work that never retires. 
The world says, take your successes and lavish them upon yourself. Indulge yourself. The resurrection says, take the prosperity, whether you know it or not, that He has given you, and then decide in what new strategic way you can use it for the kingdom of God, because if it's not used in that way, it's worthless. You know, I want you to know, especially some of you here this morning, there are a number of you in our country, it's all over our country, it's happening, where a number of men and women are moving into a kind of a new season of life. It's a season of life where unexpectedly they have the opportunity to take early retirement. Money, for whatever reason, is no longer really the driving issue anymore. And I want you to know if you are smart, and if you understand this concept called the resurrection, you will make the most strategic move, and that is rather than just simply retired of what? You will go before the Lord of heaven and earth, and you will ask what your new orders are how you can be used in a whole new way that will take you places and into people's lives and doing things that will energize your life rather than find you with all those things brooding your life away. That's what the resurrection stands for. So if you're nearing or approaching that, let me challenge you to look at this particular point of the resurrection and what you will find in it will be life. So go for it. That's what the resurrection means. And those who've done it have not been disappointed. And then finally, I want you to know that this story tells us that the resurrection stands for a new explosive reality. And we see that in the life of the one disciple, apostle, who wasn't there when Jesus Christ appeared on that Easter evening. In fact, he shows up later and he's still in the midst of conflict and pain. And we'll pick it up in verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore were saying to Him, We have seen the Lord. But He said to them, Unless I see in His hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into His side, I will not believe. And eight days again, and after eight days again, His disciples were inside. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace, be with you. But his eyes were on Thomas. And then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Listen to me this morning. This is the place the resurrection seeks to bring every person in this room to this kind of complete confession that Thomas makes. And I call it a complete confession because he says, my Lord and my God. He brings those two concepts together as if they're one and they are. If he would have simply cried out, my Lord, he would have come up short. And the reason for that is because there are many lords in life that control and dominate and lead us. For some of you here this morning, your work is your Lord. And it drives you. And it controls you. And it consumes you. There are some of us who, who have other kinds of lords in our life. Sometimes tyrants like alcohol and drugs. 
For some of us, it's just misplaced priorities. For some of us, it might just be we believe too much in a person. We thought they were going to be our, our knight in shining armor and carry us away. And yet now we feel like we live in a kingdom in which we're a slave and there's a Lord over us. There are a lot of lords in life. But Thomas was clear about who his Lord was. He said, my Lord and my God. He meant my Lord is my God. That's who my Lord is. But I want you to know if he had just simply said my God and fallen down on his knees in worship, he'd have still come up short. And that's because God means different things to different people. And so many times those interpretations are inaccurate. And some of us, God is just simply some vague, nondescript concept, some new age kind of concept that we've come up with that really doesn't mean anything practically. For some of us, God is some kind of person that we have passively acknowledged because we grew up in the church. And so we say there's a God, but that God has no interest or involvement in us. We've never felt that. For some of us, God is someone you meet just simply at death. You live your life, you meet Him at death. For some of us, God is someone that we've believed in, we've hoped in, but if we were really honest, we've never ever encountered. But I want you to listen to Thomas's complete confession. He says, my God is, and then he defines it, He's my Lord. I not only believe in Him, but I want you to know my life is directed by Him. My life starts with Him. My life revolves around Him. It listens to Him. It reports to Him. My life worships Him. My God is my Lord. And this explosive new reality that the resurrection unleashed upon Thomas, it unleashed it in the whole world. And the whole world was changed, including the day, because of this incredible event that these men experienced 2,000 years ago. Now, you know, some of you are sitting there in your seats and you're probably like my son was not long ago. You say, yeah, but if I saw Christ, yeah, I could believe that. But I've not really seen Him. I mean, if you had that experience, sure you'd cry out, my Lord and my God. But what about those who haven't seen Him physically, like these men? That's a good question. And isn't that the most important question really here today? Is He really real? And how do I know? My uh, youngest son, Mason, during the Thanksgiving holidays, came to place his faith in Jesus Christ, and we're excited about that. For some, but some weeks later, I went into his bedroom at night, and he was in there kind of whimpering and upset, and I said, Mason, what's bothering you? And, uh, you know, you don't know all that's going on in a, the mind of a 10-year-old, but, but they oftentimes think more clearly philosophically than most of us. And with a lot of anxiety in his voice, he said, you know, Dad, I don't know if I believe in Jesus Christ anymore. I said, really? I said, why is that? He said, Dad, I can't see him. I don't know if he's really real. How do you know he's real? That's a great question. Isn't that a great question? How do you know he's real? And that's where all of us finally come on this Easter morning. How do you know? Now, I don't know if I said all of these things to Mason in that moment. I said some of them. But as I thought, you know, I said, you know, I know he's real. I do. I know he's real. 
I know because I have experienced His convicting presence of my sin. I've experienced that. I, I remember when Jesus Christ showed up in my life and one of the first things I experienced was not just some mild guilt. I felt a heavy pressure about the things I were doing as if a voice was speaking to me and saying, this has got to change and I'm here to change it. I felt that conviction. And you know, I found that others who've met Jesus Christ without sharing that experience has said the same thing almost exactly. The convicting presence. I believe in Jesus Christ because some of the most critical moments in my life when I've been in absolute anguish, I've cried out to Him for help. And in the moment... I've experienced the leadership of His Spirit and I've chosen to believe the way He was leading me and it turned out right. It turned out to be the right answer. I believe He's alive because I've trusted His Word as it spoke to me in some private moments as I've read through it. And as I read through it and read Jesus' words and the words of the apostles, there have been moments where the words literally jumped off the page as if they were now speaking directly to my heart. And I have trusted in those and it has proven faithful over a lifetime like nothing else. No person, no institution, no philosophy. It's proven itself to be true in my life. I believe in his, that He's alive because I prayed to Him earnestly. And on a number of occasions, I have received the answer to my prayers in remarkable ways. I believe He's alive because as I look back and around, I see people who experience Him in just the same way. You know, it's amazing that I can pick up a second century Christian work and read it, and that man is sharing his experience with Jesus Christ, and I go, this is exactly what I experienced. I can read a fourth century teacher, a 12th century revolutionary, a 15th century Reformation leader, an 18th century leader in the great awakenings of America, and I can talk to you. And you know what I find? You share how Jesus Christ has moved into your life, and I can go, I can totally identify with that. What are those common experiences? If they are not the reality of the resurrected Christ who said to His apostles one day, you know, it's good that I go away. It's good. Because if I do not go away, I can't send my Holy Spirit to you who can minister to you and comfort you and lead you in the ways of truth. I have not seen Jesus Christ physically. But here's what I want to declare. I want to declare my faith here today on this Easter morning. I have seen Him. I have. And that brings me to what I call the last beatitude. You know, the most powerful of the beatitudes are not the ones that Jesus uttered when He gave His first sermon that's called the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find it there in Matthew 5 when He recounts the principles of the kingdom of God. I personally believe the most powerful of all the Beatitudes was the final Beatitude Jesus gave right before His ascension. In fact, He gave it as He met with these disciples and confronted Thomas. I call it the Easter Beatitude. It's the Beatitude and the only Beatitude that can unlock the reality and power of the resurrection into your life here this morning. You want to know what it is? It's when after Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God, he looked at Thomas and he said, do you see and, and believe? And then he said this final beatitude. 
Blessed are those. You'll be blessed. Life will be so different. You'll be blessed. Blessed are those all throughout the centuries to come who do not see <laughs> and yet believe. Happy Easter. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks here this morning. What a, what a glorious morning to celebrate history's greatest surprise that You unleashed on this earth that has changed so many lives in so many ways, reconstructed history even into its very calendar that it uses. History is really Your story. And we thank You because You are alive in this world. And nothing can stop You. And Father, as we conclude here this morning, I pray for those who are here today that if nothing else, they will hear from You that You are extending Your resurrected hand to them. So that for their own personal history, they themselves might discover what we know. And that is that You are the God of great surprises. We give You glory. We praise You on this wonderful Easter morning. In Jesus' resurrected name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.